As we come now before the Word of God, if you'd like to read with me, please turn in your Bibles to the book of John. John's Gospel here in chapter 5. I will be in, in John chapter 5 this morning. As I mentioned before, uh, I'm a little under the weather, so if I sound a little raspy or if I sneeze, I will try to turn off the mic before that happens and turn away. Uh, but thank you for your patience. I will uh, do the best I can to be clear uh, here if I can. Uh, before we read, would you pray with me? Lord, help me now to speak what is true of you. And help me and us to hear these things in a way that stirs up faith in us. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Would you produce obedience and repentance in our hearts as we come to know you and want to follow you. Lord, guide us now by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to take this morning these first 18 verses. I know that's quite a bit uh, here, but it's an entire story. So uh, John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who'd been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another one steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up. Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who'd been healed, It's the Sabbath, and not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was, calling, he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. This is the word of God. Now, 
If I can give just a quick personal note on this text before we look at the content of it, one of the main delights, at least for me, in preparing a sermon is I get to spend a lot of time just sitting and trying to listen well to the Word of God. This book is truly alive. It's the very Word of God. It's the voice of the creator of the universe sitting in our lap. That is stunning to me. So that's one of the great delights. One of the main difficulties in preparing a sermon is that not everything that's in the text can fit into one sermon. Sometimes I try anyway to squeeze it all in and that just never works. There's just too much good stuff here to be able to take it all in at once. So in some ways I feel like a kid in a candy store. You walk in, your eyes get real big, it's all bright, it all looks great. There's only so much that you can fit in your pocket and you have to leave a lot of it up on the shelf for another time. So one of the candies here that I would love for us to get to chew on, but we just don't have time for it, is the very last words in verse 18, how Jesus is equating himself with God. That is of huge, huge significance to us. And some people who are not Christians uh, might think that Jesus is just a teacher, uh, just some sort of guru, perhaps just some sort of prophet, And those who think that totally miss that the people who crucified Jesus thought differently. They they crucified him, at least in part, because Jesus was equating himself with God. They were not unclear on this point. And this means the world to us. Christ is equal with the Father, one with the Father. I'm sad to have to leave that up on the shelf. It's candy for another time, but I just wanted to sneak in a little bit of a a nibble there, and then I'll tuck it back uh, up there. So there we go on that. During our time in the book of John now, we are focusing our attention specifically at some of the questions that come from Jesus. We're trying to listen to the questions that Jesus asks. So if you were here with us last week, back in chapter 1, we heard Jesus ask, what are you seeking? The question that we hear today in this text is at the end of verse 6, where Jesus asks this, do you want to be healed? Hmm. Do you want to be healed? The irony of this, that I happen to be sick on this particular Sunday, is is not lost on me. But we're going to try to dwell on this. So some of you know, maybe you've even uh, joined us in this, that Laura and I play a lot of board games. Quirky board games, board games that you may never have heard of. Uh, One of the games that we really enjoy is called Pandemic. Uh, which gets a little bit too real these days uh, because the, in pandemic, uh, the players are trying as a team to cure and contain disease that is taking over the globe. And, uh, and so in this game of pandemic, one player can play the medic character. And the medic at some point in the game can just cure disease by walking into a particular city on the board. 
The medic doesn't even have to do anything, just move into the city for a moment and the disease goes away. And so it's been the running joke over the you know, years of playing this that, that the medic is doing the, the Jesus move, that he walks in and the disease just disappears. But actually, that's not technically what Jesus does at all. Jesus could heal in this way, of course. He can just walk in and it's all gone, but he doesn't do that. There's not some sort of you know, medicinal aura around him that anyone within a radius just suddenly gets well. He is not a vaporizer. This is not just automatic and unconscious healing. When Jesus heals, he is an intentional healer. He usually heals, sometimes is different, but usually heals by speaking, which is what we see here. Now, if Jesus' healing is intentional, then we need to look at what Jesus intends to do here in this particular text and what John, the author, intends to tell us by including this event in here. Now, in trying to sift through what Christ means to do, it's a, it's a bit of a tricky issue. Because if we look carefully at the text, you might notice that while there is a lot, a lot going on here, there's also just a lot of things that we don't know things that we might be interested in or curious about that the, the author just doesn't tell us. So we have to be careful, careful listeners about what Christ does and does not say here. Because what we are not told can also be important. Let me just make a few observations about what we are not told in this text. When Jesus asks this question, do you want to be healed? He's not just talking broadly to everybody. He's talking to one particular person, a man who here in this text is called an invalid, which from my time having worked extensively with people with disabilities, that word is, is uh, it, tricky, I know. Uh, but it's not intended to be you know, demeaning. It's just the reality that he could not walk. So he's speaking now to this man who's an invalid. And even though he's talking to this particular man, we do not know the reason why Jesus engages this one man. I mean, he's clearly unwell. He's been an invalid, we're told, for 38 years, and Jesus even knew that this man had been sitting there for quite a long time. We're told that this pool is by the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem. And this was a common a hangout spot, if I can call it that, for people with disabilities. So this man was not alone in this spot. We're told that there were multitudes of blind and lame and paralyzed people. And it's possible that Jesus healed all of them who were there. He may have, but if he did, there's no record of it. What we hear, at least, is that Jesus focused, for some reason, on this particular man. He's, at, he's maybe the only one healed, at least the only one reported of being healed, and there's some reason for this, but we're just not told why. We're also not told what is actually going on with the pool of water where this man is. We know what some of the people thought was going on, that whenever the water stirred, 
So perhaps it swirled or bubbled, but there was something kind of on the surface of this pool of water. Whenever it stirred, the idea was that if you could get into the pool early, or maybe even first, that it would somehow be helpful, may perhaps even heal a person. And there's no explanation given as to the real cause of the stirring. We don't really know what's going on here. Maybe there was some supernatural reason for this. Um, some seems to seem to think that this was caused by an angel. If you look closely in your Bible, you see this mentioned in verse 4, which some of you may be confused why verse 4 is missing, seems to be missing in the text. In my Bible, you might find it in a footnote down below. It's not in the main text because it was added as a later comment. It's not written by John, but a comment by somebody else. That's a whole other box of candy that we'll have to leave on the shelf. We just have to trust that verses are not falling out of the Bible, all right? Uh, but there's some historical context that some seem to think an angel was coming and doing this. So it may be supernaturally. There might have been some natural reason that there was some aqueduct inflow of this, that somehow minerals were being uh, pumped into here naturally at some point, or perhaps there was just some superstition around this. And there was some sort of placebo effect that actually was effective for some people as they stepped in. Whatever was the case in the pool here, why people were gathered around it who were sick, whatever was going on was not working for this man. And Jesus doesn't seem to make a big deal of the pool at all. He doesn't even give a comment on it. He just kind of steps past it. So we'll just kind of move beyond that one. We also don't know what happened to the man after these verses. In fact, we don't even learn his name. So there's no way that even if we were living in the first century that we could, we could track this guy down. You know, some have, have wondered if this man who was healed here became a follower of Jesus. Uh, perhaps he did, although the fact that he reports back to the Jews knowing that they were against him, knowing that they were even trying to kill him, seems to indicate that he was maybe more on the side of the Jews than on the side of Jesus. But all this is just speculation. It's not really helpful to us to give guesses on this. The author doesn't tell us what became of this man in the end. And the fact that the text is silent on this point does tell us something important, which is the fact that this man is not the center of this account. The man who is healed is not the point of this. It is about something bigger than him. It's even about something bigger than a 38-year-long ailment that is suddenly healed. And we'll address that in just a moment. The last thing that I need to mention that we do not know about the text, and this is most important, I think, for us to recognize, we do not know from the text here the cause of this man's situation. We do not know how he came to be an invalid. And there's been a lot of historical debate around this especially because of verse 14, where Jesus says to the man this. He says, see you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And this sentence from Jesus would lead some to assume that the source of the man's ailment is his own sin. 
Sin no more so that something worse won't happen to you. That may be the case, but the text is not quite that clear. What we do know is this. If I lost you or you fell asleep, come back. I know it's warm in here, okay? What we do know is this. Sin is always the cause of suffering, but it is not always the direct cause of suffering. Let me unpack that in a moment. Let me say it again, though. Sin is always the cause of suffering, but it is not always the direct cause of suffering. Let me explain what I mean. Scripture shows various reasons for people's suffering or circumstances, and at times there's direct, even serious consequence for sin. So we could comb the Scripture and find easily Uzzah, you know, the guy that disobeyed God and touched the Ark of the Covenant? Sin, disobedience, and instantly was killed directly by God. Or in the book of Acts, in chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, who brought an offering uh, for the church and lied about it, were instantly killed by God for their sin. And uh, even at the Lord's Supper, Paul mentioned that there were, there were some who were undermining the body in some way. He doesn't explain what's going on, but the fact that some had undermined the body, he says, because of this, some of you have fallen asleep and died. There was a direct correlation between the people's sin and a physical, uh, a physical um, connection with that. Sin then is never, never to be taken lightly or trifled with. And we should not assume that Jesus is just going to be fine with it. Jesus is just going to forgive it. He may, he will, if we're believers, but these have real effects. So on one hand, we see these sorts of things. We also know that suffering is not always a direct uh, correlation with sin. We see lots of examples of this as well. So Lazarus, who became ill and died, we're told the reason for that that the purpose of this death was not his own sin, but to display the glory of God, that it would cause people to believe. Or, or Paul talks about his thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that is, but some sort of suffering, some sort of uh, trouble that he's undergoing, and the purpose was to keep him from becoming conceited. Not because he was conceited, it was to help him avoid entering into sin. And then, you know, famously, Job lost everything he had not because he was sinful, but because he was righteous. In each of these situations, it's never the person's own sin which is the cause of their suffering. But instead, their suffering is serving a greater good according to God's good purposes. So let's bring this down to the man here in in John. Let's just say that this man who's lying here at the pool, let's just say for the sake of illustration, because we don't really know, that he became an invalid 38 years ago because of a car crash. I guess chariot crash? I don't know. Whatever. Riding something fast in the, in the first century and, 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 and crashed and, and he now can no longer walk. That crash may have been a direct result of his own sin. Maybe he was a drunk driver of a chariot. 
took in a little too much, a lot too much, went out, and, and in some way, this is the natural effect of that. That could have been the case. It might also be the case that someone else was a drunk chariot driver and crashed into him. And so this response now is not the cause of his sin, but of someone else's. It could even be further than that. There's, there still may be grounds for sin, but a lot further back. Some, let's say that maybe the horse on which you know, he was riding in the chariot, the horse gets spooked for some unexplained reason, and, and then heads off and swerves, and the chariot crashes, and the man becomes an invalid as a result. In this case, there's no sin directly involved in any way. But if we track it back far enough, we can trace the source of that suffering clear back to the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve bit the fruit, disobeyed God, sinned, and introduced death and suffering into the world. So suffering is always, always, in some way, from sin. It always comes from sin in some way, but it's not always a direct result of my sin. It's important for us to recognize that. Now, this might bring up a question, at least it does in my mind, maybe it does in yours. How do we know whether this suffering is a result of my sin or not? If I am struggling, if I, if I am in the midst of trial or suffering, is the source of that suffering something that's wrong in me or someone else or some, somewhere else? How can I tell the difference so that I know how to respond? John Piper recently addressed uh, a similar question to this in a way that I thought was helpful, and he pulled uh, from the opening words of James. James in chapter 1. Let me read the text he uses first and then and then give you his words on it. He says this in James chapter 1, verse 2. The scripture says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. From this, John Piper makes these comments. He says, James doesn't distinguish whether trials are coming in response to specific sins we've committed or not. What he does say is that in every kind of trial, every kind, faith is being tested. And the aim in every trial is a kind of steadfastness that shows that God is trustworthy and wise and good and valuable and all-sufficient for our situation. So ultimately, the aim of every trial in the Christian life is to make Jesus look great by our patience, our faith, our love for others in his goodness. Now, some of those trials may be owing to specific sins in our lives, and other of those trials may not be. But the goal is the same in both. If there are specific sins in our lives, the goal of Christ-exalting steadfastness includes recognizing, repenting, and moving out of those sins. And if no specific sins are manifest, the goal is still the same, to magnify Christ through faith and repentance and love. 
In other words, if I can summarize what Piper has just said here, whether the trial or the suffering is from my sin or not, it is still right for us to seek repentance and faith and trust in Jesus. It's always the goal. I think that highlights what's going on here in John. There is much more in this account in John than this man being able to walk again. And the fact that John tells these events this way makes sure that we don't miss this. So let me point it out. In verse 6, Jesus asked the question, do you want to be healed? And after a little bit of conversation, the issue gets resolved in verse 9 at the beginning, and at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. The end, right? That's the way, you know, problem, solution. We got it. Nice, tidy scene. But the scene here is not over. Which means then to show us that this is about something bigger, that, that the author has more to tell the reader just whether or not the man's legs work or not. In the verses after verse 9, Jesus steps out of the scene for just a moment. He slips out through the crowd. We don't know where he went, but he returns. And he finds this man who's now walking around in the temple. And Jesus comes back then to finish what he has started. And when he meets the man again, he only says one thing to him, and it's in verse 14. See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus' statement here when he says sin no more is not backward looking. He's not talking about whether or not the man's sin is a cause of his invalidity for 38 years. This is forward looking. In other words, where do we go from here? See, you're well, but now we need to deal with your sin. See, you're well, that's good. I'm glad you can walk. Jesus cares about our bodies. He made them after all, but we need to be well in our soul. What good would it be if Jesus healed the man's ankles, but not his heart? So Jesus now returns to emphasize this. This is what I came to do, to deal with your sin. Because if this man's sin is not dealt with, his situation is far worse even than everything he has known in the past 38 years. That instead of sitting by a pool of water for that time, he might be subject to sitting by the lake of fire. Or instead of sitting there for 38 years, he might be sitting there forever. And if he thinks that he is all alone here, that he has no one to help him here, he cannot even imagine the sort of isolation that will be in store for him. So Jesus is asking a very pointed and important question now. Do you want to be healed? For us, there is some measure 
of self-examination that's fitting. To let the question settle in and do its work. Do I want to be healed? Not just of my suffering, but of my sin. Of my rebellion against God. That if there is deep-seated sin still within me, there is somewhere that by God's power I need it rooted out of me. It needs to be confessed and repented of. It needs to be made war against. That sin even needs to be put to death in me so that I can be healed and made whole. This is a good question to ask yourself. Do you want to be healed? But, but, even while it is good for us to self-examine, the scripture, and in particular the book of John, is not mainly trying to get us to look at ourselves. We know this, but we need reminding of it. The goal of the scripture is to get us to see God. To look at Jesus. To see who Jesus is. John even tells us that that's his goal at the end. He's got bias. Of course he does. We all do. At least he tells us what his bias is. And at the end of chapter 20, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which aren't even written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you might have life in his name. John says to his readers, I want you well. I want you alive. I want you full of life. And actually the way to do that, the only way to do that is through the name of Jesus. I wrote all of these things down so that you'll believe him, so that you'll trust him. The point of this is to bring us to Jesus. You might have noticed in this account, this is the last thing I'll mention. You may have noticed in this account that the man at the pool never actually answers Jesus' question. I mean, you'd think it'd be an easy one to answer. Do you want to be healed? Yes or no? It's a yes or no question. Do you want to be healed? Easy answer. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I want to be healed. We don't hear that. The response of the man is, in many ways, a natural one. His response in verse 7 is basically, I have no one to help me. Do you want to be healed? I have no one to help me. In a roundabout way, he's saying, I can't do it. Do you want to be healed? I can't. That's not an excuse. It's just true. And what's true of the man's body here is actually true of all parts of us. Do you want to be healed? I can't. Do you want to have more faith? I can't. Do you want to conquer sin in your heart and your life? I can't. Do you want to be holy? I can't. 
can't. I can't unless I have some sort of help. The scripture says that not only are we sick, we are not just invalids who cannot walk, we are dead. Dead in sin. We cannot do any of this unless we are made alive. And that is what makes the gospel of Jesus such good news. This is the candy on the shelf. Make sure you tuck these things into your pocket. Paul summarizes it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. We've heard this many times before, but need to hear it again. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And this isn't your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you want to be healed? I can't. But Jesus can. And by his immeasurable grace and power, he does. Would you pray with me? Lord, these things are life for us. Help us to find rest in these truths. We know that we love only because you have loved us first. Lord, you are mighty to save, to heal, to make alive. Would you do that work in us? put sin to death in us even so that we would love and follow you. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.